what I'm gonna, this story that we're going to share tonight, I mean, really, if you watch very many TV series or TV dramas, this would make for a really great TV drama. I mean, there's suspense and intrigue and betrayal, conspiracy, treachery, all the juicy stuff people like in TV shows today. Uh, we've got a cast of characters that include a king, a queen that loses her throne, an orphan girl who becomes a queen and saves the day, a man of God, and of course a villain. Now some of you may already, with those clues, you're starting to calculate and figure out who we're talking about. But this person could take the, if you wanted to take and make a TV story out of the story of Esther, um, you could make a, a quite interesting TV movie of the week. So our story begins innocently through uh, enough with the king of Persia, Xerxes. He's throwing a big kingly elaborate banquet um, and officials. Now you've got to understand this is not um, a church party. So this is a king's party. So it's, uh, it, could, it can be a little wild and crazy, but it's a major shindig, if you will. Use Arkansas term, shindig. Um, there's food. Uh, the drink was flowing freely. Um, unfortunately. Unfortunately, I got to mention this, a little racy, but dancing girls, but there was, there was, it was a Saturday afternoon to get together. I mean, this was a big deal. And Xerxes and his uh, friends partied hard for a week, a week solid. And so by the seventh day, the king and his guests had been drinking heavily, and the scripture says, uh, in high spirits from wine, in other words, they were plastered. They were completely uh, out of their senses. And so in his present condition, he wasn't thinking to, too clearly, and he offered his queen Vashti to come out and, and dance inappropriately dressed, we'll put it that way. He asked her to do something that was going to put her out on display uh, to show her off. And she was a beautiful lady, known to be very beautiful, and so wanted to show her off. And so he sent for her, but her not wanting to be prayed around before a bunch of drunken men um, uh, inappropriately, she refused and it ticked off the king. And so he decided it, it was uh, such a serious matter that he would consult with, it about his, with his advisors. His drunk advisors, of course, but his advisors. And so he, um, uh, they, he goes to talk to them. They tell him, yeah, Vashti, she's done wrong. And uh, not only to him, but they say to all men. You know, basically, what are women going to do? If they see the example of the queen, they'll start defying their husbands. We'll have anarchy in all the homes, and, and men will lose control of their homes, right? That's, that's what they're telling. So um, they, they basically say, you may say, why did they feel that? Well, because if the queen can refuse to obey the king's command, then obviously all women will follow their example and disobey their husbands too. So they said to the king, there will be no end of disrespect and discord. So the advisors instruct the king to uh, dispose, or depose, I'm sorry, depose uh, Queen Vashti and find a new queen, um, perhaps one who was less opinionated and would do what he wanted and less defiant. So his advisors tell him to ensure that all women will respect their husbands from the, the least to the greatest. So the decree goes out that every woman should obey her husband and that every man should rule over his own household and Xerxes, he gets rid of Vashti and he decides to have the whole kingdom search for beautiful young women who uh, could come and make their bid for the throne. So it's a little bit like uh, who wants to marry a millionaire, like the, the show that they put on. Uh, this is who wants to marry the king. So the girls were to be groomed and pampered for several months and, 
And then each one in turn were to spend some time with the king. And through this process, from that experience, he would decide which one would be his new queen. See, we thought that these TV shows, Gone with the Rocker, is something new. This is age old. You know, this silly thing about 15 people trying to win the love of one person competing. Uh, yeah, The Bachelor. I just say, forget it. That's not worth it. Where, where's the nearest Pizza Hut, right? <laughs> I got a free limo ride to the Pizza Hut, and I got on TV for all of two seconds, right? So, but anyway, uh, I'm not them. They apparently find people who are, uh, uh, don't like pizza as much. I don't know. But Esther, when she was a little girl, Esther became an orphan uh, when her father and mother died. She had a very uh, rough start to life. Young girl losing her parents, and especially in that world. Uh, we didn't, they didn't have the benefits of uh, placement systems and, and, people, and, and, uh, and people with a heart for, for adoption like we have today. Um, and there's still a growing need every day in, in our world. So you imagine back then, this was a really rough start for this little girl. But fortunately, Mordecai, her cousin, raised Esther from childhood as if she were his own daughter. And that's true love. When you raise a child that, that is, uh, not, uh, uh, was not born to you, but raise them as your own. And so Esther, now a young woman, she's selected as one who will be introduced to the king. And everyone who looked upon Esther was captivated by her beauty. So she was a, a beautiful girl that just, when people saw her, and, and you know, you, you can see, and, and especially if someone is beautiful inside and out, right? I mean, there's a difference who's someone who walks in that has physical beauty, but you can tell by their attitude, and so they become unattractive just because of the air they give off, right? But, but someone who is a solid person inside, who, who is a desirable to be around uh, because of who they are on the inside, and then striking beauty on the outside. So this is the picture we have of Esther. And wouldn't you know it, when Esther is brought before the king, he finds her more beautiful and desirable than all the other women. So the king, completely taken with Esther's beauty, makes her his queen. So in this TV drama we have going on, you know, this is, the, this is nearing the happy ending, right? Well... There's a man who is one of the king's closest friends. His name was Haman. And this is the villain. He's the guy with an ego that's bigger than all outdoors. Remember me talking about the one-uppers? You ever known the one-uppers? You got really great news, so you come to them all excited, and you're only about five minutes into your great news, and they're like, oh, yeah, well, back when I la, la, la. You know, I told, I think, I told somebody a story. I worked with someone like that, and so uh, being honorary, you know, I... I I just sometimes can't leave things alone. And so I would just tease this person by, I'd make up something, you know, just to see how big they'd one up it. And uh, unfortunately, I shouldn't have done this. I got my boss in on it and I said, hey, I'm going to come up with a really good one this time. Let's see what happens. So, uh, you know, she actually did it. And she started talking about going to Europe and visiting a, a big castle and uh, all this nice furniture. And lo and behold, the one-upper had been to Europe and been to an even bigger castle. I mean, no joke. So, you know, this is the kind of, Haman is this guy who has this big ego, and we'll find out in the story just how big in, in a few moments. But Haman convinces Xerxes to make a decree, this is how big his ego is, that whenever Haman walks in, people must bow to him. He's not the king. He's just a close friend, right? An advisor of the king, but people must Bow down. How egocentric, right? But Mordecai is a Jew, and he will only bow to God. So here becomes a conflict between good and evil. Mordecai won't bow. And so Mordecai flatly refuses to bow down to Haman. 
And as you might, uh, might guess, it gets Haman's goat. And so he's Haman's all up in arms. And rather just uh, blowing it off, Haman stews about it. I mean, someone dared to not bow to him after the king had decreed it. So Haman had devised this plan to exterminate not just Mordecai, but all the Jews in Persia because Mordecai won't bow down to him. I mean, Haman's straight up mafia, right? Uh, I'm not just going to hurt you. I'm going to hurt your family. Well, no, I'm just going to hurt all the people that are like you. I'm going to hurt your whole people group. And so he devised this plan. And so Scripture says Haman looked for a way to destroy all, all Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. This guy's a mini Hitler. He, he's literally ready for genocide over the fact that he wouldn't bow down to him. So Haman tells Xerxes that there is a, a group of people who do not honor the king's command. He just says a group of people. And specifically, the one about bowing to Haman. And he says, If it pleases the king, let a decree be issued to destroy them. And Xerxes tells Haman to do as he pleases with the Jews. Boy, he just slid it right in there, didn't he? So this decree goes out with the king's seal to destroy and kill and annihilate all the Jews young and old, women and little children. So when Mordecai, Mordecai hears the king's order, he, he tears his clothes and sits in ashes and weeps for his people. That was the way that they had, a, uh, they had mourning then. You know, now we send flowers to the funeral or we, you know, we, we cry a bit or other things, but they would tear their clothes and sit in ashes and that was the extreme uh, form of, of mourning. And um, so... So Mordecai isn't the only one weeping. So are all the Jews. In fact, throughout the provinces of Persia, when the king's edict is read, every Jew wept and mourned and fasted. People are giving up food, waiting on God to answer. They realize that, that death is coming to all of them. So eventually word gets back to Esther that Mordecai is sitting outside the king's palace, overwrought with emotion. And Esther, greatly distressed by her cousin's sorrow, sends a message to find out what was going on. So this whole fourth chapter of Esther and going on Esther's story is unfolding through the fourth chapter of Esther. And Mordecai returns a copy of the king's decree to Esther and begs her to go before King Xerxes and plead for mercy for the Jews. Now keep in mind, she's not been queen long and think how she got that job previous queen hacked off the king and she went away i don't really know how she went away right but she's disposed of she's uh, uh, gone and so he's easily uh, ruffled enough to just discard one queen and another she's got to have that on her mind and also royal protocol dictates that no one including the king queen is allowed to enter the king's presence without his express invitation you know if my wife wants my attention she just walks in and says, honey, and says it. And as a king, you know, and our president and his wife, I'm sure she can at certain times come in, but if he's in a big meeting about world war and they got the red button and a finger on it, I'm sure she can't just walk in, right? The red phone's ringing, you know, Batman's on the phone to the president. You know, the bat symbol's gone on. Uh, some of you just look sleepy, so I'm just throwing in a little curveball so I get your attention. But so, uh, so we, it's not uh, typical. In fact, Esther... Uh, sends word back to Mordecai that she can't just go waltzing into the king's court without invitation. She could literally lose her head over such a breach of simple etiquette. 
So before a young woman's turn came uh, to go into King Xerxes, she had to complete um, 12 months of beauty treatments prescribed for the women. I mean, we're back to the bachelor. They've got to go to the, you know, the salon and get all ready. And then six months of, uh, uh, with oil of myrrh. And then six with perfumes and cosmetics. And, and this is how she would go to the king. You don't just go in, like, let me just schedule an appointment this week. It's a long process. So anything she wanted was given to her to, uh, uh, to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. So in the evening she would go there and in the morning return to another part of the harem to, care, um, to the care of the king's eunuch who was in charge of the concubines. So she had someone in charge of her preparing her for this, this moment to be able to get the uh, king's attention. So she would not return to the king unless he was pleased with her and summoned her by name. So when the turn came for Esther to go to the king, she, um, this eunuch passes along the information, basically, from Mordecai. Uh, the, this is the decree of the king, and your people, our people, are in trouble. But she goes to the king. She asks nothing uh, other than what Haggai, the, uh, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the harem, suggested. She, she basically, what he says from Mordecai Douche, that's what she takes to the king. And so Esther wins favor of, of everyone who saw her, including the king. But when Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, this is what um, was sent back. She says to him, do not think that because you are, or, I'm sorry, this is what Mordecai sent to her, the message. She said, do not think that because you are in the king's house that you alone with all of the Jews, will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to a royal position for such a time as this. What is he saying? Don't think for a moment just because you're in the king's palace that, that you know, you may, you may escape, but... He's talking about himself because he's part of the family. But, but you and your fathers can perish. So um, Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go gather all the Jews and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. And I, my maids, will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. She's just prepared. I could die from this, but I'm willing to fast and wait on the Lord. And that's key and integral here. It's not a matter of them just devising a plan, hatching this plan for her to go to the king. But there's fasting, there's waiting on the Lord, there's a, a reverence for the fact that this has to be God or it will fail. So during the three days of fasting, Esther devises a plan. She decides to hold a banquet in the king's honor. She invites Haman, the evil guy, and publicly to, and, and she invites him, but to publicly expose him for the scoundrel he is. So her plan is to get the king to repeal Haman's order to have the Jews exterminated. So Haman, completely unaware of Esther's plan, is feeling quite good about himself. He's hatched his plan, uh, thinks it's going along well. And, uh, and here's the thing. He even makes a gallows ready to take care of Mordecai. He's thinking ahead. And, and he's not even aware, he's not even thinking of the fact, he thinks it's a great thing that Queen Esther has invited him to this banquet with a king. So he thinks, well, she's even uh, approving of me, even though I'm about to kill all her people, right? And so 
But while Haman is strutting around outside the king's courtyard, he sees Mordecai, and Haman becomes enraged when Mordecai refuses to bow to him, and he runs home and tells his wife about Mordecai's defiance. And Haman's wife says, Well then, Haman, honey, you've got clout. Just build the gallows and have Mordecai hanged. And then he goes off the banquet all happy. So liking his wife's advice, Haman builds the gallows upon which he's going to hang Mordecai. And now the night before the big banquet, the king has a bad case of insomnia. He can't sleep, so he calls to have the record of his time as king read to him. Basically, I can't sleep. Maybe it'll put me asleep if I read my own history, right? A lot of us, that's how we get to sleep, right? We just start recounting the day, and next thing you know, you're off to sleep. They can't sleep, so they, ha- they read this decree. And as it begins to be read to him, in that he is reminded how Mordecai, right, who raised Esther, how Mordecai had saved his life from an assassination by two palace guards prior. So he had forgotten this, but he, he hears this. So earlier, Mordecai overheard a plot by the two king's guards and uh, to assassinate Xerxes, the king. So Mordecai tells Esther about it, and she goes to the king and tells him what Mordecai heard. And the king catches up with the two bad guys, right, that's going to kill him and has them uh, executed. And so Mordecai had saved the king's life, and he's reminded of it. So here's this. Then the king asked, what recognition has Mordecai received for this good deed? Right? Oh, I I forgot to reward the guy, right? Saved my life. It's kind of like President Obama just gave... uh, uh, Vice President, the Congressional Medal of Honor, right, or Freedom. I, I can't remember. He awarded him something. I caught it on a news article as I was uh, earlier today. But but then the attendant answers, who's reading him his history, says, Ah, well, nothing, sire. Nothing has been done for him. Ah, the dilemma. This is a guy with his head marked, right, for the gallows, and now he owes him a favor. So, This leaves the king thinking, I need to do something to honor Mordecai. After all, he saved my life. And you keep in mind how how Haman presented this king. He kind of slipped it in there. He didn't give me a lot of details about who all he was going to kill, but just people that didn't bow down, right? So the next morning, Haman comes strolling into the king's court, and Xerxes says to him, What should be done for the man the king delights to honor? What shall be done for the man the king delights to honor? Now, if I walk in a room and when somebody says, what should I do for just one of the greatest guys in the world? And I'm looking around and thinking, hmm, I guess I could come up with some things you could do for me, right? We tend to think a lot of ourselves and think, we're, you know, or you see somebody walking in with a, a present, especially Christmas time, right? And you're like, oh, is my name on that? So, I mean, this is, you know, Haman's walking in. He's all happy. Gallows are built. Going to kill all the people that don't bow to him. So now there'll only be left people who about him. I'm all happy, and the king's like, what should I do for one of the greatest men there are, uh, or the, uh, someone the king delights to honor? Well, Haman's ego, his head swells, and he gets the better of him, and not surprisingly, Haman thinks the king is referring to him, and so Haman doesn't have a clue that the king is really asking what should be done for Mordecai, and Haman suggests an elaborate parade with much pomp and circumstance. I might have done that too. Throw me a parade. People throwing candy at me, pecan pie. Not throw it, but hand to me, right? What else can I think of? And so he goes on, clothe the man in royal robes, 
Put him on a beautiful horse and place a royal crown on his head. Let him be led through the streets by one of the king's noble uh, princes. And, and he is being led, dressed so well, riding on that fine stallion. Let it be shouted from the mountaintops. You know, right? So this is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. Exclamation point. So imagine Haman's chagrin when the king Xerxes says to him what he gets ready to say. Now, how many times have you been caught in a spot where you thought someone was saying something good about you? You're like, oh, thank you. You're like, oh, well, actually, I was talking about, <laughs> right? Like, you know, I catch tail ends like, oh, it's so handsome. Oh, thank you. Oh, I was talking about your son. You know, um, but this way he says, ah, I love it. I'm paraphrasing. The king says, now, do exactly what you've just said for Mordecai. You'll find him sitting outside my gate. Do it for Mordecai. In fact, he's just right outside. Remember, he just passed him, you know. So can you just see Haman's mouth hanging wide open in disbelief? In a humorous twist, Haman ends up being the one who leads Mordecai through the streets of the city shouting. <laughs> and this is what's done for the man who, who, who delights the king, who the king honors, right? This is the man who the king honors, right? Now, Mordecai, godly man, but if it was me, I'd say bow, <laughs> right? Or dance, right? So, as you imagine, Haman's madder than a hornet, and afterward he rushes home and tells his wife and his friends what happened. And they say to him almost prophetically, this is Mordecai before before whom your downfall ha, uh, has started. It is a Jew. You cannot stand against him. You are surely going to come to ruin. Truer words have never been spoken. Because, remember the feast that Esther wanted to have in honor of the king? Well, the story, the plot thickens. Because the one to which she specifically invited, Haman. Haman's got to be there. Uh, I, she, she specially sealed his envelope, right? to make it look fancier, to kind of appeal to his. So anyway, I'm adding things there. But uh, So the feast is going, and, and, uh, and uh, still feeling quite generous, King Xerxes says to Esther, My dear, what is your request? I will give you anything you ask for, even up to half of my kingdom. Man, how the Lord is just, he's just setting it all up, right? Esther sees an opportunity. She says, If I have found favor with you, O king, and if it pleases your majesty, grant me this one request. For I and my people have been sold to destruction and slaughter and annihilation. And King Xerxes asked Queen Esther, Who is he and where is the man who has dared to do such a thing? Esther replies, The adversary and the enemy is this vile Haman. In a rage, the king leaves the room. Now, Haman, knowing his fate is sealed, I'm not sure from this passage that the king is leaving in a rage against Haman just yet. He's in a precarious situation, right? If he was willing to make everybody bow to Haman, then this is a favored guy of the king, right? But now he really favors. I mean, when you're married to a good-looking woman, right, who is also very nice and a very godly woman, then there's nobody, I mean, there's nobody that get on your side better than she can, right? But he was first, and then Esther comes later, but now Esther's got his attention, and he's offering anything she wants, and she lays it down 
you got to take care of your evil buddy there. So, Haman, knowing his fate is sealed, throws himself on the couch where Esther is reclining to beg for his life. And about that time, the king comes back in. The bachelor left just long enough, and the show host, you know, is over there lounging next to hitting on the choice pick, right? I'm doing this mostly for a few over here because they are apparently into The Bachelor. They're the ones brought up. But so he, he does this. And, and about the time the king, he sees him lounging, and this is what the king says, will he even molest the queen while she is with me in the house? Oh, man, this guy can't win for losing, can he? Poor old Haman. Now we feel bad for him a little bit, right? No, the evil guy. He's a victim of his own undoing. And so someone gets the word the king to the king that the gallows had been built in Haman's own yard upon which Mordecai was to be hanged. And the king says, hang Haman there. Right? The poor guy built his own uh, own uh, hangman's noose. And so Haman is dragged out, kicking and screaming, and hanged on the very gallows he intended for Mordecai. And Esther then asked the king to overrule the edict initiated by Haman to destroy all the Jews. The king happily agrees and a new royal edict is issued and all the Jews in the province throughout Persia uh, are protected and there's dancing and rejoicing in the streets, at least in, in uh, Israel town, right? So, um, and then also that they have the right to defend themselves from uh, any and all attackers, which they didn't have before. So now someone comes against them, they won't be in trouble for raising a sword and defending their, their, their uh, families. So Esther continues to find favor with the king. Mordecai is elevated to a second in command of Xerxes' kingdom. And all the Jews in every region throughout all Persia celebrated. Uh, there's feasting and joy and, and gladness in all the land. And the Jews have been spared. So there's the happy ending. But the twists and turns and the plots and the decep deception which resulted in ultimate victory for God's people. What are the practical applications of this? Now, I purposely read this more like I was reading a story. Anybody ever seen The Princess Bride? And it starts out with a grandpa reading to the son. So I thought, I'll catch your attention. We'll read it like a storybook. But, but that's all great, and we got a good fuzzy feeling from the happy ending, but how does this apply to us? There's four things from the story that I want us to catch in our final moments tonight to just get an idea of, of what God is trying to teach us through Esther's experience here, through Mordecai's experience, what happened here. First thing is we see that God will put us in the right place at the right time to serve him and accomplish his will as long as we are willing to be put in that, that situation. For example, it's not coincidental that Mordecai overhears two of the king's guards plotting Xerxes' execution, right? God set that up. And the fact that God had Mordecai in the right place at the right time to stop that assassination, which was key it was a key component of what the ending came for the people of God. Esther is another good example. God having a purse in the right place at the right time. I mean, an edict from the king himself gone out to destroy the Jews. Only her beauty inside and out, her, her servant's heart for God, right? Her love for her people. God handpicked her. Now think about it. She could have been born without those looks. Some people let the looks go to the head, but God sometimes blesses people even with being uh, attractive for his purpose. 
we can get bent the wrong way on any gift God gives us. We can use it for the wrong things. But, but Esther had been given this gifting of being beautiful, just stunning, catch people's attention, and God even used that. Some of us think, what is my gift? I don't even know. You might just have a presence about you that when you walk in a room, it catches people's attention. Or you might have something about your personality that just draws people in. God can use those things. And Mordecai says to Esther, who knows, perhaps you have come to the royal position for such a time as this. Even Mordecai sees it. So the same holds true for us. God has us in the right place at the right time to serve him and bring about the fulfillment of his will. But think about what Esther went through. She, her very life was on the line several times, both from having to approach the king uh, and, and if she did it wrong or upset him, also uh, finding out that her people was the ones that were the edict was to, to take out so her life could be on the line. And so your lives, your relationships, your jobs, your friends, your everything is not just dumb luck, it's providence. Divine providence. So God has something for you to do. Uh, God has a pl- place you. Sometimes you don't like your job. You're frustrated. You can't understand why you're there. M- maybe stop and let God begin to speak into you about why you're there. He may have a purpose. It may be miserable because you're seeing it from the wrong angle. You may be miserable because you're thinking about pay and time and uh, frustration and projects. And God's placed you there because there's people who need to hear the gospel. And he's, you've been blessed to be in church for a lot of your life or maybe long enough that you have enough of the word you can share, right? So God gives us a small whisper of, of awareness that we're where he wants us to be at the right time, the right place. The reality is that sometimes the place we expect or want to be will be different than where God has us for the moment. And sometimes it's uncomfortable. Secondly, is that God's plan will be accomplished even if we don't participate. Now, I want to be, ca- be cautious about this because I've had friends who I had to, that God led me to help them with their theology on this because um, Mordecai says to Esther, if you choose to keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will come from another place. God will use others to do what you are supposed to do. But that does not mean that we are to just say, well, it'll get done anyway, right? Then why do I have to participate? Because there's a key component of God using us. He chose you first because he knew the ending would be good for you and others. It's good for all of his children. And you're going to miss out on something awesome God planned for your life if you bow out just thinking he'll do it without me. So given all I just said, I, what I'm, I, I'm telling you how uh, God wants to use me even though God wants, um, God wants to use me and even though God wants my obedience, the truth is that God's plan will not be foiled just because I'm unwilling to participate. So the third and last thing, we, um, I'm sorry, the third, there's fourth. Uh, we cooperate with God to accomplish his work. The thing is, is that we can like the message site um, in, in tongues interpretation, we could um, question God at every turn. We could question his ability to accomplish it through us. And um, then we could derail us being a part of it. But we've got to be willing to cooperate with God. And then fourthly, God is at work in the hearts and lives of individuals, even those who don't know him. We, we sometimes think if my, God, if my boss would just become a Christian... Then, then my job would be perfect. If my spouse would finally just come to know the Lord, or if my father or mother, and yes, we want that, and God wants that, but sometimes we write off that God can't use them 
until they surrender to him. And that's far from the truth. I, I mentioned it recently, and in, in it was in another service, a uh, uh, second service, I think I actually mentioned it Sunday. Uh, Mom and Dad came to first, but you know, I remember Dad telling a story about uh, a town drunk or a, a lady in town that her husband was drunk, and he had pledged, I think it was $800 missions, which was a lot of money back then. Uh, probably more like 8000 today, I'm guessing. But um, he had pledged it, even though they didn't really have mo- the money to do that. And then this town drunk comes in and says, Preacher, I know you think God can't talk to an old drunk like me, but he, uh, but he did, and he gives him a check for $800. So, so we, we can't write off that God can use all people to accomplish his purpose. So when you're in the heat of things and, and you're, you're trying to let God use you in your sticky spot, you know, don't write off that unbelieving boss. Don't write on that off that unbelieving family member that God can still speak to their hearts, still accomplish what he needs to accomplish, even if in the end they don't make a commitment to follow him. God will accomplish his will one way or another, right? Otherwise, the book of Revelations can't be true. If we can totally foil God's plan and he can't find another way to do it, then we can't believe that in the end he wins for sure. And God's word is true, so we know that his will will be accomplished. So a question we ask ourselves as we close tonight is, is what is it that, that God has asked us to do? What are the gifts and talents? What is the place that he's putting you in? And maybe it's difficult, but, but you're afraid to participate. You're afraid of what might come of it. And think of Esther. I mean, how fearful she must have been. Easily replaced, right? Last queen was replaced. King could have her head different time and place than now. We can really let ourselves be petrified in fear about what the enemy might do to us and miss out on an awesome ending to a fairy tale story, right? God's trying to make our life, just like we talked about recently, He's trying to make his superheroes in the supernatural world, right? So let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for... Um, for you choosing to tell Esther's story, Lord, to, to give account for what you did through Esther, through Mordecai, Lord, even through King Xerxes, Lord, for us to see uh, in this picture what Haman represents, Lord, the opposition that comes to us when you are trying to place us in the right time at the right place. And, and Lord, we, we're tempted to think everything should go smoothly because you're the one putting us there. God, I could think of that in ministry, that you've placed me here in this role and that everything should just go smooth. That, Lord, uh, I shouldn't ever have any turmoil. But, God, we know from your scripture and, and from Esther's life that that's not the case. But if we trust you, you've given us the assets to be, to be good stewards over. And, God, you expect a return on your investment in us. Lord, let us be a part of that return. All glory and honor goes to you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Love y'all. And uh, men, don't forget the men's conference. We're going to be very short on time for getting um, this out to everybody and and getting our ducks in a row. So if you want to be a part of the men's conference, uh, you need to to get on that soon. Love y'all and have a good night.